Stand by for a start. Racing at $210,000 at Isella Done. Well done. Hello and welcome to episode 21 of The Shortlist, Where Has the Time Gone? The official podcast of the Federation of Bloodstock Agents Australia. This podcast is brought to you by our fantastic sponsors, IRT and Stable Financial. Joining me today to discuss all things racing and breeding across Australasia and the rest of the world if we get there, our FBAA member, Dave Mee from Pinhook Bloodstock, and a very special guest and a legend, Dave, who we'll get to in a moment. But first to you, Dave, welcome, hello, where do we find you as we record today? G'day, Shark. G'day, uh, babe. Uh, bonjour, mes amis. Uh, I'm actually on the Gold Coast, sunny Gold Coast, uh, up here for the Magic Millions, Weanlings, Mares and Yearlings. So um, busy, busy. The travelling roadshow continues. So we're up here for the next couple of weeks. Yeah, two and a half weeks on the Gold Coast at this time of year is not a, not a bad place to be. And you, you did sort of tease our guest. I'll give him a proper introduction, Dave, because he, he deserves one. <laughs> a man known as the Babe. No, and a true legend, I would say, of of Australasian racing. And in the saddle, how's this for some stats? Over two, over two thousand five hundred winners, fifty four Group Ones. You tell me if I'm wrong anywhere here, babe. Uh, you won the first of four Cox Plates at seventeen. Royal Ascot winner on multiple occasions, including the Ascot Gold Cup, Guineas Cups, Group Ones, wherever you want. Hong Kong, Macau, the rest of Europe. I could keep going, Mr. Brent Thompson. It is a pleasure to have you on the shortlist today. Morning, guys. Uh, wonderful to be, be with you. We've got blue skies. Um, shark, as you know, in Melbourne, but a bit bit fresher than where Dave might be on the Gold Coast. I, I, I like his little intro there. Is that the only part of your French uh, <laughs> uh, vocabulary at the moment, mate? Just try to slide that. Pretty much, mate. The kids are fluent, but <laughs> Dave, not so much. Yeah, okay. oh, yeah, mate, you'll, the longer you stay there, the more you'll learn, I'm sure. Yeah, no, it's a great, great, uh, great experience. But um, uh, yeah, no, thoroughly enjoying it. So, but always good, good to be back on the uh, home patch. So we're into it. Sure. We should just touch on that, Dave. You've you've actually, it's I wouldn't call it a sea change. It's a, it's a sort of continental change, isn't it, with the family? Can you just yeah. run us through briefly what you're experiencing at the moment? Well, but it's primarily initially driven by family. My uh, partner uh, is uh, French and. We've had a plan for a few years actually to go over there for some time to put the kids in school and just uh, reconnect with uh, my partner's roots and um, lucky enough to sort of uh, with the way my work uh, calendar and um, not so much lifestyle but all well, it is a bit of a lifestyle I guess but um, COVID put us back for a couple of years but we um, made the decision to uh, uproot for 18 months and just go over to France to as I say, reconnect with Anne's family and enjoy the culture and the experiences and put the kids in school. And um, um, I've uh, been lucky enough to do some sales and just trying to develop some, um, you know, some business privately with me as off the track and racehorses, uh, obviously with the the influx of European horses. Um, so we're, you know, tracking along those lines and, um, yeah, I'm just back for a block of sales, back for the yearlings, went back up for a month, uh, and then back here for the mares and weanlings sales. So, on a personal and professional front, it's been, uh, I feel very lucky and uh, it's going well. Yeah. BT, it's a beautiful thing about 
the racing and, and bloodstock industry, isn't it? it? It it reaches across all continents, all countries, and it can take you anywhere in the world, as you well know. Yes, you know, I, I actually envy um, Dave there because, uh, you know, one of my favourite countries that I rode in uh, France, um, not not enough really. I I, I uh, but I was lucky enough to ride, um, you know, in plenty of weekends over, over there. But um, um, it was uh, it was fantastic to ride like like the Long Champ. Um, strangely enough, I never ever rode at Champ Um I think it must no. be just a way to calendar calendar fell, you know. I, I never rode in a French derby, but I, I rode at uh, Longchamp. I rode countless times at Deauville, which I think isn't land for adults. And uh, um, <laughs> <laughs> I'd go there to ride a station hat. Um, uh, yeah, I, I need didn't I didn't need the, the arm twisted up my back to get to that place. What a wonderful place. Yeah. But um, yeah, all in all, that'd be great, great for your children. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, living in another country such as France, I'm, I'm sure it's been a great experience. So yeah, no, it's uh, feel very lucky. But um, just back to UBT. So when you were riding over there, you were you're primarily based in in and around Newmarket, and you just used to fly the, the various um, uh, you know uh, meetings uh, from uh, from England. Yeah, well, in my in my time, um, uh, certainly in the eighties, there was no Sunday racing. Um, the church church still had a very stronghold um, on, uh, you know, no, you know, no racing on a, on a Sunday. Um, and so, uh, the majority of uh, good races in Europe were always on a Sunday, um, whether it be in Germany, whether it be in Italy. Um, not necessarily Ireland or or England, um, but certainly in, in in France. So, uh, yes, it was easy to be called up um, to uh, to go to those uh, countries on a Sunday, and even other countries. Um, you know, obviously because I rode in something like about twenty four countries in the world, uh, um, and uh, often they were on a, on a Sunday. But um, you know, uh, uh, it's sort of like here in Australia, flying to Sydney or Brisbane, um, you know, mm. two hours was probably a long, long flight on a Sunday. But, you know, there was a long day because by the time you got the heat stray, by the time you, you know, flew over the hour time difference, etc. So got home at eight o'clock uh, at least at night. And, um, you know, it, it was on, on the road again Monday. So in the summer months, it was certainly a busy schedule. Yeah, you talk about the plane rides over there, uh, BT. You must have had some uh, hairy or interesting plane rides in your time flying between countries over there. Uh, we had a few interesting uh, uh, helicopter <laughs> rides in the in the in the fog when it when it uh, would come come in, and uh, all of a sudden a steeple, a church steeple, might appear in front of in front. Yeah, that was a bit hairy a couple of times. Yeah. Fortunately, the uh, pilot found oh, a motorway in a, in, in a paddock somewhere. All that um, track, the, the international uh, experience, BT. It sort of it, it started from you, or it, or it all came from from basically success at a young age in, in New Zealand and Australia. You're something of a teenage prodigy, winning Cox plates in as a teenager. Uh, became a great jockey in Australia, and obviously working closely with with Colin Hayes and and the team there. As you travelled around the world and you rode horses in in different locations, did you notice 
Like, are there stark differences between the animal from place to place? Uh, yes. Yeah. Like, um, there was like, a, aside from riding, you know, race riding uh, and riding the various tracks, um, uh, you know, that in itself was uh, uh, quite difficult, uh, a big learning curve. Um, but, um, you know, if you talk about the 80s, um, you know, possibly a little bit of um, uh, stallion shuffling. Uh, you know, we had the likes of God's Walk when I was riding for Colin Hayes and, the, and um, some others. Um, but I, I think, you know, the, the thoroughbred that we see today in Australia uh, derives from that, you know, the, the early part of shuffling where we, you know, we had the colonial race, race horse, bred race horse, um, and, uh, uh, and, and, you know, when I got over there and, and um, was riding sons of, say, Northern Dancer and Naginsky and those sorts of extremely well-bred horses, extremely expensive horses, you know, no, noticeably there was sort of that classic look about a, about a, about a horse that we, we probably hadn't, hadn't um, really got to witness uh, in the early stages of that sort of cross mm. um, breeding, if you like, or for want of a better word, you know, all of a sudden you know, here's these big name stallions uh, or by, you know, uh, that that we we suddenly uh, were able to breed to, and um, whilst that made it may have um, uh, the, the the colonial bred horse is probably a tremendously strong boned horse because you know let's face it, horses race sometimes two and three, you know, sometimes two to three times, um, uh, four times a, a month even, um, you know, backed up weekend, weekends where today that, that, you know, maybe they're, we can argue that they're a little bit softer, but um, um, uh, I think that was just, just the uh, transition of crossing these uh, beautifully bred horses and highly successful horses in this day and age um, bred to our mares, mares here, and that's been a enormous changes I see it um, personally. Listening to you talk about the different thoroughbreds and, and the insight that you give about you know type and everything else around the world it, it probably comes as no surprise then that when you came back and, and retired from, from riding that you found your way into the bloodstock world and, and currently your, your role that you've had for a number of years as a New Zealand bloodstock representative here in Australia can you tell us about, about that role and, and what it entails for you these days? Yes, well, I, I, I guess um, I might have been a, you know, um, not a minority of jockeys that sort of uh, take an active interest in breeding and 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 uh, and bloodlines and uh, and so uh, yeah, it wasn't uh, it wasn't something that uh, I sort of had to, had to learn in terms of you know you know picking up. Uh, uh, Sales catalogues and reading pedigrees, and you know, I had some knowledge, uh, you know, quite some knowledge of it. And so, yeah, in a way, it was a great transition for me to uh, walk into this uh, position that I've held for 22 years now. Um, right. Yeah, so that, that, that's that's uh, you know, I've been uh, I've, I've, the NZP put up me put up with me this this long, and it's uh, it's a great uh, company to work for. So I'm not. I'm not beating my own drum, drum there, but uh, uh, so you know, in terms of uh, my position here, um, 
it's a bit of a hard de- description, you know, if that means playing golf on a Monday and uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and networking, the networking uh, BT. <laughs> it, well, it is to, to, to a degree too, I agree. Um, but uh, yeah, um, you know, it can be seasonable, be, season, seasonable because during the winter, like everything, it goes a bit quiet. You know, obviously certain sales with, with brood mares and, uh, you know, weanlings and brood mares and, and uh, fillies off the track, on and off the track, et cetera, uh, next, next week. But, um, you know, our sale obviously made the sale ready to run, which is highly successful in November. Uh, and our yearling sale in uh, in the end of January, beginning of February, always. So uh, great to be back to some form of normality with uh, post-COVID. Um, and, you know, I look after uh, our uh, client, uh, existing clients and hopefully new clients, um, uh, like, you know, with the uh, Chairman's Club at, uh, at Flemington, we always host plenty of guests through the calendar year there. Um, and generally just on the ground uh, here, here in Victoria, um, also venture to South Australia to uh, touch base with um, trainers and, um, and, and uh, clients over there uh, a couple of times a year. So, um, you know, it's not, not a sales pitch, it's just, um, um, you know, meet and greet and shake hands with, with everyone and, um, you know, know, know that we're still thinking of them uh, um, throughout the year, just not, not uh, sales time. When it comes to the transport of your valuable thoroughbreds, look no further than IRT, the world leader in horse transport. IRT has serviced the international market for almost 50 years with offices in Australia, New Zealand, Germany, the UK and the USA. Their experienced staff are with you and your horse at every step of the journey. IRT are proud to support the FBAA in enhancing and promoting the Australian thoroughbred market. IRT, your horse, our passion. Adam Timms here. Stable Financial has been helping thoroughbred businesses since before GST started, and we enjoy some incredible long-standing client relationships. We're very happy to support FBAA and its reputable network of advisors. As the Bloodstock agents facilitate trading opportunities, the stable makes sure that horse owners, breeders, trainers and syndicators are getting Group 1 business and tax advice. Please visit our website and get in touch with our awesome team at the stable. See how we can add value to your horse business and let you focus on finding winners rather than worrying about it. Dave, it's been a, a really good time, I guess, to be out there uh, touting the, the benefits of New Zealand bred horses because they've had a, a fantastic season, haven't they? You know, I guess the New Zealand... Thoroughbred's always a part of Australian racing and the Australian racing scene, but the last couple of years in particular, there seems to be uh, something of a resurgence. Yeah, it's been, been amazing. It's, um, I'm not sure resurgence is the right word. Obviously, it's a word that you could use. I mean, the last three years, I think, uh, if we got the stats right from um, Mr. Brendan O'Brien, uh, 18, 16, and 20 and counting for the last three seasons. So it's been, um, you know, they always talk about the, you know, the the New Zealand got away from, you know, the, the staying kind of product. I mean, that, that's sort of a generation ago. I mean, you, you look at the the horses that are bred there, the, the stats don't lie. But um, when you actually go dig a bit deeper and you, you look into the, um, the 20 so far this season that have been bred, like it's a who's who of, 
you know, and then a good cross section uh, of breeders from New Zealand who have bred these horses. So, I mean, you, when people think about New Zealand, the the the, headlo- the the headline is obviously Cambridge and Waikato, but I mean, there's the people breeding these horses, the guys running the show now, they're, they're generational breeders. When you, yeah. you work out from the line, you we'll start with the South Island, the most important island first. And when you go from, you know, you go your your Brian Andertons at White Robe and you know, now sort of run by Wayne Stewart. You've got your Gus Wigley's at Inglewood Stud, uh, Mark Corcoran, um, you know, Sam Williams at Little Avondale, Mark Corcoran at Grange Williams, sorry. Uh, Mark Baker, obviously John Thompson, Rodney Schick, Sims Davidson, all these guys, uh, the Fowls down there in the central districts. I mean, these guys, they know how to breed a horse um, and they, as you say, you know, 10, 20 years ago, the uh, we're sort of sticking to our knitting. And I think there's a, dip, a lot of different ways of looking at it. But, you know, these guys have got the environment to grow horses. They know how to breed the horses. They know what works. And, um, uh, there is, you know, the proofs in the pudding. So it's, um, it's you know, as a proud Kiwi, it's, it's awesome to see. And obviously BT being a Kiwi as well, it's, um, uh, you know, it's no fluke. Uh, when you get 18, 16 and 20, I don't know what the percentages of the winners Per stakes races per year, but I mean, it's 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 we're really holding our own, you know, more than holding our own, I would think. Absolutely, and and you you raised a couple of good points there that it's it's not as if the the skill of breeding a good horse has has been forgotten or they've just decided to to do things differently that away from what they've always done. That Kiwis know how to breed a good horse, but I reckon there's another aspect here. It might be that Australians are looking more or have turned their eyes back to New Zealand and, and possibly away from Europe with the really high prices for tried horses. And that market probably peaked uh, two or three years ago and got to a point where the risk versus reward and the spend that you had to uh, put in to buy a nice tried horse from Europe, it might've just put a few over the edge and, and had them asking, well, where do we look for, for quality horses again, uh, tried stock or younger stock? And, and maybe New Zealand uh, was the uh, the old girlfriend there that you'd, you'd saw always had in the back of your mind, BT, that never really uh, you never really got over. Yeah, lovely, lo- lovely way to put it, Chuck. Uh, <laughs> Have you seen um, a bit of that though? Have you seen buyers coming back that perhaps were active, you know, five, six, seven years ago that might have gone on a different path, maybe explored a European path, maybe. Uh, focused on speed for a bit. Have you seen them returning to the market? Oh, look, when, when uh, you know, I think what, what you said there um, absolutely nailed it. And I think, you know, when I was looking back at this this season, um, which is quite extraordinary when you think that they bred, uh, New Zealanders bred um, Group 1 winners from 1,200 to 3,200 metres, yeah. which... Hasn't it, you know, like we've never been known for, you know, speed on speed. Um, but to come over and win, win those big 1,200-metre races has been probably, you know, something that, well, I can't remember when it, when it did, did happen. Um, it possibly did many, many years ago. But, you know, um, it, uh, it, it's been, uh, that's been sort of quite, uh, quite something. Um, but it's great to see the 
you know, the, the, the Australians, uh, who always will be our, our biggest buyers from the New Zealand thoroughbred here, you know, back buying, you know, even fillies um, uh, in training, as they would know, you know, some of those are expensive, you know, they've been quite expensive fillies come over here and, and race with your major stables. So, you know, it seems like um, people are, are very much aware of what's going on. Dave, you mentioned uh, John Thompson and Rich Hill. They've enjoyed a great sort of 12 months, even 18 months, haven't they, with Prasia uh, just performing, firing all cylinders, and then Satono Aladdin, uh, the new kid on the block, I guess, doing his bit as well across a, a variety of distances. But that I think it, testament to the, the strength of not only uh, that's those stallings we mentioned, but also the confidence in the New Zealand market was a share in Poissier that was offered recently uh, via Inglis at the chairman's sale, selling to Godolphin for $400,000. You know, when you've got one of the, the biggest breeding operations in the world showing confidence in a, a Kiwi-based stallion, it, it's only a positive thing. Yeah, no, well, just to clarify, I think he's running with uh, the moniker Sir John Thompson these days. <laughs> <laughs> he's going yeah, there, Yes, he's going there, good old Tomo. But um, yeah, look, it's fantastic. I mean, uh, John invested in the uh, obviously price has been been a you wanted to eat. I was caught up with him at Easter, as you know. It's taken him thirty years to be an overnight success. So it's it's a lot of skill and knowledge and hard work that's gone into it, and he, it's like a this is a result of a lifetime's work from so because he invested in some. The, you know, the Japanese blood was Satano Aladdin and, um, you know, that's bearing rich fruit um, prices. Uh, um, you know, that's just a great story, you know, and uh, when you look at the stock, it's no surprise because he leaves such wonderful athletic, you know, good hock, good walking, good brain horses and the Satano Aladdin a little bit the same. I mean, but he just... Um, you know, he knows what he's doing and um, it's just he's really reaping the rewards. And then uh, uh, an, uh, an operation like, truly international operation like Godolphin um, uh, purchasing that, I mean, that's just justification. So rich reward for him, you know. So, um, uh, no, it's fantastic. And, you know, he's not the only one. You know, there's other, there's plenty of other guys over there, um, uh, you know, getting just reward Gordon Cunningham, uh, you, know, they're, they're, uh, you know, Jerry Harvey. I mean, he's often overlooked in New Zealand. I mean, he stands those type of stallions like Redwood, El Rocco, Tarzino that fit that, you know, classic New Zealand mould. And, you know, they're just good, you know, better than good solid horses. They're, they're getting great results. Well, the other really interesting stallion prospect over there that Australians will obviously remember and, and know really well is Super Seth. And his... Uh, yearlings have been really well received. What, what, what do you make of that stallion in the New Zealand market, Dave? And, and what did you think of his progeny that you've seen so far? He's by Dundeal, of course, but uh, Caulfield Guineas winner in really dramatic uh, fashion when he won the Guineas, uh, arriving late to to get the job done. What have you made of? Uh, well, if I'm completely, if I'm completely honest, I, I, um, I thought they were nice horses. I didn't think he was leaving uh, absolutely stamping them, but the the fact is that he's, you know, um, he's been managed by extremely strong, knowledgeable management with Mark Chittick and the family there, and the, the guys running Waikato. He's going to get every opportunity, and they've gone into the right stable. So, 
um, couldn't say exactly uh, what the probability would be would be for him to succeed, but it would be very high. I mean, he'd, he's got to be a good chance, very good chance, I would imagine. Adam Timms here. Stable Financial has been helping thoroughbred businesses since before GST started, and we enjoy some incredible, long-standing client relationships. We're very happy to support FBAA and its reputable network of advisors. As the Bloodstock agents facilitate trading opportunities, the stable makes sure that horse owners, breeders, trainers, and syndicators are getting Group 1 business and tax advice. Please visit our website and get in touch with our awesome team at the stable. See how we can add value to your horse business and let you focus on finding winners rather than worrying about it. When it comes to the transport of your valuable thoroughbreds, look no further than IRT, the world leader in horse transport. IRT has serviced the international market for almost 50 years with offices in Australia, New Zealand, Germany, the UK and the USA. Their experienced staff are with you and your horse at every step of the journey. IRT are proud to support the FBAA in enhancing and promoting the Australian thoroughbred market. IRT, your horse, our passion. Perhaps the other the other point or the other aspect of this story that's not hasn't been often spoken about has been the last few seasons with the yearling sales, I guess since COVID. Uh, the number of New Zealand-based farms that are bringing horses to the Australian market. You know, perhaps in previous years, they've banked on the Aussies coming over for, for the Caraca sales, but we're seeing more and more farms, whether it's ready to run or yearling sales, presenting drafts in the local market. Dave, have you got any thoughts on that as to uh, what the thinking or the planning has been from those operations? Um, well, I think COVID had a fair bit to play with it in recent years. It was just a diversification of their you know, they're, 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 they're horse farmers, these guys, and they've, they've, they sell their yearling crop. That's how they make their money. Um, aside from, you know, the, the guys standing stallions. But in part, it was um, uh, due to, you know, just spreading their product around. Uh, they weren't putting all their eggs in one basket. Obviously, COVID probably fared better than first anticipated at the start of the pandemic and as we went through the pandemic. But I know a lot of guys, um, it, it's... The cliche horses for courses you know some guys like to spread it around and targeting certain horses at certain sales to try and max maximize the the um the potential uh sale prices so there's that part to it and bt of course we also need to consider the appetite of the asian market for new zealand horses as well it, going back to what we were talking about when when we had that sort of bit of a um a lull in the you know the New Zealand thoroughbred doing well in Australia. Um, I always wondered Mick, how how many horses went to Asia that had they stayed in us uh, trans Tasman say competing and as as they were and used to be. How good some of those horses would have would have been. We'll never know, of course, it's hypothetical, but I'm sure there would have been some outstanding horses who just didn't suit Asia, and you know that that happens quite a lot. They're not running against, you know, the distances that they would have been racing here, trained probably differently as, as well. So I think I think we lost lost a bit of ground there, um, Dave. I don't know if you you know see it that way too. I'm glad you brought that point up, BT, because it's interesting with the uh, the horses from New Zealand that go to Asia, specifically Hong Kong. I mean, the money these guys are paying for horses, uh, the floor price, as we know, for trial horses and uh, lightly raced horses for Hong Kong 
has risen dramatically in the last couple of years. So the Asian market, specifically Hong Kong, it affects the tried horse market into New Zealand because the floor pro it underpins the floor prices for these trial horses. Um, you know, the 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 the, the colts and gaudies, which flows into the the cost of the 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 uh, fillies and mare market. Um, and some of the sometimes when I ring up. For example, here's, here's an example. I've, I've rung up about two horses this week out of New Zealand. One was a really nice, why mention any names or trainers or specific horses, but a, a lightly raced uh, three-year-old that won very impressively visually, but he wasn't qualified for Hong Kong. Um, you know, I inquired about whether he could be bought and what the price may be, and they said, well, they've already knocked back, you know, uh, you know in that three to 400 range from Australia. And they said, well, we, wanna, we wish to now qualify him we're going to take the punt to qualify them for um, Hong Kong, where we can maybe you know uh, add a couple of a uh, couple of um, one or two hundred thousand on top of that. So you can understand that thinking, but as a buyer of horses trying to find value, it's just the way I'm wired. It makes it very hard to find value out of New Zealand. And sometimes I've made calls, um, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, sometimes a very unpopular opinion, probably what I'm about to say, but sometimes. You know, I find Kiwi trainers might be the most unrealistic people on the planet, but you can understand why they're holding out for the extra cash, but it affects the value that you're trying to find buying into, um, you know, for your Australian clients. Um, so you have to get a bit creative, ask whether the Kiwi owners wish to stay in the horse for a piece. And then that's not easy because then you, you know, you may be upsetting the current New Zealand trainer. Um, but you know, it's a commercial transaction, so you've got to do what you can. Having bought a number, a lot of horses and tried to buy probably even more, you understand what you think the value is. But, you know, there's always the other side of the equation when you go, well, I'm spending $500,000 on, on a nice horse I know can gallop as opposed to buying a $500,000 yearling. So different ways of looking at it. Then you weigh it up against the European horses. Is it better value, worse value? Uh, we now know that, we all know that European horses work over here. So as an agent, you know, um, with perhaps a growing international um, perspective of things. Before we wrap up, it would be remiss of us not to get a greatest hits list from Brent the Babe Thompson. BT, can you tell us who who do you think is the best horse or the best horses that you've ridden locally and internationally? Uh, well, Dr. Five, you know, he's so easy to uh, um, put up front. Um, you know, for obvious reasons. Uh, and uh, I, sadly, I don't think we've seen the best of him um, uh, due to his uh, a, a, a fatal injury. And, uh, you know, he he was uh, so good um, and better than the other Cox Plate winners that I, that I, that I rode. In Europe, I rode um, some very smart horses, uh, you know that here would have been sensational um as well committed that robert sangster owned she was twice european champion um of her time and uh and uh you know like she would be win any new market any any uh uh of our best sprint races um she beat some great sprinters of the time up in europe uh I rode a horse called Sure Blade for uh, Sheikh Mohammed. That was a, a good, very good two-year-old and a very good three-year-old race in the same year as Dancing Brave, who was the best horse I ever witnessed. 
Um, mm. I think still, uh, still the greatest horse I ever witnessed. Um, mm. And you know, there, there's lots of good horses, Mick, but you know, the the three that pro- probably stand out in my my mind, you know, um, without without hesitation. I know you probably rode for all the greats, but was there any one or two trainers in particular that just stand out above the rest that you rode for? I, uh, you know, I must remember, you know, my ent- not my entry into Australian racing because coming out and winning a Cox Plate at seven, and he was, but to ride for, uh, you know, one of the three leading stables in Australia uh, in that era, uh, you know, obviously Colin, Colin Hayes was, was a great. Uh, he was he was good to work for. We had very few run-ins, um, and if they were, they were generally forgotten by Monday. Um, you know, you can't write them all per- perfectly, but we got it right most of the time. Had some pretty good horses in that era as well, and uh, but you know, I witnessed you know some of the greats were being. France, you know, you met, you know, I, I was just reading about the younger generation of the Head family today. When you had uh, Alex Head in my time, then Cricket, uh, Freddie, I rode against, um, and in in and in England, I always thought there was very little between the now Sir Michael Stout and uh, the late Sir Henry Cecil. I didn't think there was much between mm-hmm. them in my my era. You know, I rode for Barry Hills. He was a great 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 trainer. Um, uh, never yep. rode much for uh, Henry or or uh, Michael, but um, I admire how good they were. I know you rode against uh, some of the best and uh, of your generation. A um, uh, uh, handful of the best jockeys, you, in your opinion, you rode against. Well, you know, when I come over here, Dave, you know, Roy Higgins was was um, still uh, at his top. Uh, uh, you know, when you think that um, between Caulfield, Mooney Valley and Flemington, we're talking about spring carnival time leading up, you know, that cup week, I think he rode 11 straight straight winners at those three, three meetings. You know, of wow. course, he rode all the top weights because he was a heavyweight jockey and he rode for, say, Tommy Smith, Bart Cummings as his main um, source and uh, Angus Amanasco. Uh, you know, you had Ronnie Quinton in Sydney, you had all the great Peter Cook, uh, um, mm. you know, Angby to name a few in, in Sydney, uh, Malcolm Johnston at, at his peak there. Um, oh, I could go on, but uh, and then in Europe, well, I rode against Lester Piggott, uh, Pat Edry, Carson, yeah. Steve Corson, Walter Swinburne. And sure. France had his, his uh, related who, you know, there was a story on East and Mark on the other, uh, the other day. And, uh, you know, they, they, they put him in the same vein as Piggott and rightly so. Um, he was, he was an amazing jockey, you know, Frankie was only young when, when I was in, in Europe, but he was making a, a lot of noise even, even then and went on to do greater things. And, uh, we see him at the, uh, at the, uh, end of his career this year. And he's still winning classic races. So enough said about Frankie. He's that, that good. It's not funny. And thanks to everyone for listening to the shortlist. And remember, if you'd like to talk bloodstock with an expert, make sure you visit bloodstockagents.com.au and get in touch with an FBAA member.